Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. We're here today with Joy Holly. Hi, Joy. Hello. Good afternoon. You're looking apprehensive because I told you that I'm not going to introduce you today. I'm going to let ChatGPT introduce you. Oh, boy. I'm not going to read the entire thing. The prompt was, write me an introduction to Joy Holly, an attorney who is going to discuss how attorneys can use AI. Fair enough? Fair enough. In the ever-evolving landscape of legal practice, the emergence of artificial intelligence has brought forth transformative opportunities and challenges. Among the trailblazers at the forefront of this technological frontier is Joy Holly, a brilliant attorney whose expertise lies in harnessing the power of AI to revolutionize the legal profession. I'll just jump to no, the, no, this. That's not real. This goes. <laughs> it's hallucinating, Eric. This goes. I'm going to read the last. Sounds time. pretty good to me. <laughs> With her deep expertise, unwavering passion, and commitment to ethical AI integration, Joy continues to lead the way, demonstrating how attorneys can leverage AI to deliver exceptional legal services while upholding the principles of justice, fairness, and human expertise. No pressure. Have I set the bar high enough here? Yeah, no pressure at all. Wow. I have never I have never prompted ChatGPT about myself. I should have done that before I got here. Thank you for inviting me, both of you. Thank you for being here. Great, yeah. So tell us who you really are. Not that that was not entirely incorrect, but go ahead. Yeah, no. Thank you. So I am a lawyer. Practice here in St. Louis since 1995. Spent a good part of my career at a local yet international law firm you may be familiar with, Brian Cave Leighton Paisner, both as a practicing litigator and then for 12 years on the business services side, running their e-discovery group and practice support group. And it was in that context that I first developed an expertise and a knowledge of legal technology and some of the foundations for artificial intelligence as we know it today. From there, I spent two years establishing the legal operations function at Edward Jones. And then since last fall, I've been an independent consultant. I have my own company called Holly Strategic Consulting, and I also work with a group of consultants called Vertex Advisors. So we do legal operations, business consulting, technology strategy, et cetera. All right. We met on opposite sides of the aisle in a case. We did. And that was a lot of fun. We won't go into all the details. Uh, Lots of twists and turns. It was really great to catch up with you not too long ago again when you sent out an email noting that you had written an article. So the article title, Keep Calm and Carry On. Artificial intelligence won't replace lawyers, but it will reward those who know how to use it. And that was a May-June 2023 article in the St. Louis Lawyer magazine. So tell us what gave rise to the idea to write that article. Several years ago, when our friend Joe Frank was the president of BAMSL, the Bar Association of Metropolitan St. Louis, he asked me to start and chair an electronic discovery committee for to help educate the bar on electronic discovery, data security, data privacy, and related issues 
And we did that. There's a small group of attorneys and specialists in the St. Louis area that focus on those issues. Fast forward post pandemic, people were getting, the Bar Association was getting committees up and running and active again. And the e-discovery committee had morphed into a broader legal innovation, legal technology committee, met and decided to chair that committee. So it was as the chair of that committee that the idea to write about AI first came up. So there's this article, and I'm going to be continuing to talk about artificial intelligence in the next edition of The St. Louis Lawyer, because it's such a topic of interest and has such a significant impact, not only on all industries, but especially the legal industry. And it seems to be changing week to week, too, or at least the impressions about it. Yes. So rapidly, it seems that there are new evolutions of it every day, and we're starting to see our federal courts weigh in on these issues as well. One of your charts you gave me shows that the amount of information generated by businesses has doubled since 2020 through 2023. It's just exponential growth in the amount of stuff we generate. And it appears that we need tools to get on top of that. And we're now looking toward AI, hopefully to provide some solutions to digest all that stuff. Exactly. If you think just about, if I think about just the course of my own career since 1995 and the technological advancements, and I'm sure we're all of a similar vintage where we learned how to do our legal research using books, shepherdizing using books. The advent of LexisNexis and Westlaw and access to that at home was, and it's relatively new, and the advent of the internet as we know it was in its infancy. Fast forward to 2023 and what we have now. Think about the acceleration of technological development and how that's impacted every area of life. And those are our clients, right? Our clients who are conducting business, who are No matter what area of law you're in, if you're practicing family law, intellectual property, construction law, product liability, anything, data is voluminous. It is becoming increasingly challenging to parse through, to get to the relevant data that you need to articulate claims, to articulate defenses, and to effectively reach a resolution of any kind of a claim or dispute resolution. Technologists are increasingly challenged on how to do that, how to get to the bottom of things, so to speak. And that is very broadly speaking, very simply speaking, how we started to develop artificial intelligence. Your article starts with the words, keep calm. And I'll just speak for potentially other people out there, including me. I don't know if I'm keeping calm. What's your forecast? Your forecast is don't worry at all or don't worry some. As far as job security, there's a lot of people who have spent their careers learning how to be a lawyer, which can take, as you all know, decades. Right. And now the thought is that this technology can come along and replace a lot of what we do. So maybe I could just turn it over to you again and just let you talk and let's hear your thoughts about why we should all keep calm. Yeah, I would say that I think... Artificial intelligence is going to have a significant impact on the practice of law in the midterm and the long term. In the immediate and short term, it's going to be varied. And here's what I mean by that. If you think about electronic discovery, and we'll talk a little bit more about the links there. 
not too long ago, there was the development of computer-assisted review, technology-assisted review, things like that. And there was a similar type of panic amongst lawyers. Is that going to replace people, lawyers? Are we no, no longer going to need lawyers to review documents? Is that going to be performed by computers? That hasn't come to pass. What has come to pass is that lawyers who have those technological skills, who take the time to embrace new things, to embrace learning technology, are rewarded. And what I mean by that is they have additional skills and those skills are valuable in the marketplace. So you don't necessarily have replacement of people. What you have is replacement of more manual, rote, clerical type of skills and what that is replaced with is the need for more skilled labor. I think that's what's played out in the litigation world with respect to electronic discovery. And I think with respect to artificial intelligence, we're going to see the same thing. All of these things are human driven. These things weren't developed by computers. Humans developed these programs, these models, these products that we're seeing come out. ChatGPT as the best, most accessible example. We're all developed by people. So I think the challenge for lawyers is to become receptive to learning new skills and to understand that this is going to have an impact on the foundational responsibilities and duties they have ethically and to the practice. So they need to know at a base level, and their ethical rules we'll probably talk about that speak to this, They're, they need to understand at a foundational level what's going on here, how these technologies work and the potential impacts on their cases and on their clients. So I think we can all be more certain of the short term, what's going on today, what's going, what's going to happen next month than we can next year or 10 years. And the thing that's stunning when you step back and think about it now, 30 years ago, if someone told me that there would be a box on my desk that could tell me the song I want to hear next or the types of songs, the books I want to read next, I would have thought you're telling me a machine is going to read my brain and talk about my human preferences that are tied up in emotions. And I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. Or if you said even 30 years ago, there's going to be technology that can drive cars and trucks and that in the foreseeable future could render 40% of our American workforce unemployable because it could do these things that humans are now doing. I would have thought back then, I don't think that's going to happen. So things have happened even in our lifetimes that were, to my mind back then, inconceivable. And I'm, I don't know how humble one needs to be when you look at the past and what's happened and then think, okay, what about the next 10, 20, 30 years. But how much humility do we need to have when we make these forecasts about everything's going to be okay? To your point, but let's think about it even a little bit more progressively. This time last year, no one probably could have predicted that we'd have ChatGPT. And it, here's what I would say about the sensation around ChatGPT, that it really isn't as explosive and as fantastic as the general public thinks it is. And what I mean by that is that 
this is technology that's been in development. It's a progression of the technology, but it's been in development for a long time, including in the law. And it's been in use and in development in, for example, any discovery platforms for a long time. The difference here and what is the difference maker is that it's easily accessible, it's free, and you don't need any kind of special skills to use it. So in the past, what you had is you had to have some kind of training. You had to know either how to program or how to do special functions to in order to make the technology work. This is just like typing into Google or Amazon or anything else. It's the obstacles or the bar to usage is so low that the general public is excited about using it and finds it to be easily accessible. That's the difference with ChatGPT. But even last year, you, I wouldn't have predicted that the general public was going to have access to this type of technology. Again, the acceleration in the development of this kind of technology and its impact across industries, not just manufacturing or specialized industries like the law. One of the things that I'm like, and it's a, it does, it's something that you don't know about. You worry, you find out more about it. And most of the time it either calms you down or makes you more nervous about it. But it's the rate of change that I've seen. And I started practicing in 86. I practiced at a like pre-fax machine, okay? We wrote letters. But the point is, when I started practicing in 1986, what I was doing and how I was doing it as an attorney wasn't much different than somebody who would have been practicing by 50 years earlier. In other words, literally, if you looked at the office I was in and compared that to what attorneys were doing in 1936, you still had the books on the shelf. You still had the legal pads. We're writing stuff out. There was virtually, if you changed how people were dressed, you wouldn't know whether you were in a law office in 1930 or 1985. And and then all of a sudden, you look back just five years ago. You, you said a year ago. And what really concerns me is, and it's a combination of what you're saying and what Eric is saying, that things are changing so fast that the rate of change, and it's accelerating so quickly that it's hard to say what's going to be around the corner. When AI starts developing AI, when AI is able to create other forms of AI and programming, I personally think it's really hard to say what the hell's going to happen in, in five years seems like two lifetimes away in terms of technology. In five years, I told this to my kids, five grandkids, I said, You're, my grandchildren will never sit for a driver's test. It ain't going to happen. It just, the, the things that we, you know, the things that were the same in my life for 50 years, all of a sudden in the last 10 or 15 are just gone. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. I was looking for something. There's a famous legal futurist named Richard Susskind who just last month gave a speech about this topic of artificial intelligence. And he said that we are in the midst of a, I believe he said a 25-year period where we're going to see more change in the way law is practiced and justice is administered than we have in the previous 200 years. And I think that's right on with what you're saying, John, is that the pace of change is dizzying and it does cause this anxiety amongst attorneys practicing now. It it should cause anxiety amongst our legal educators, right? Who has been discussion for many years about how we're already not necessarily preparing today's law students for 
modern law practice? And what do you do when something as disruptive as this technology comes out? How do you prepare them and start to make it so that they can go out and hit the ground running and effectively represent clients? It's just adjusting to that change in a system which is slow, it's bureaucratic, it's, it's somewhat antiquated. Those are the challenges that are facing every aspect of our industry and our profession. So, so what you said reminded me of the image of the butterfly flapping its wings in Rio. I don't know if you ever heard this analog- analogy to, it it's comes out of complexity or chaos theory, where the idea was when you're in a complex adaptive system that's very complex, little things can reverberate and magnify in unpredictable ways that can lead to big things later on, much bigger things that you couldn't anticipate. It starts with maybe something little. I guess where I would start, I'm trying to go backwards and think, where do we start with this? Maybe it's like statutes and rules or ways to take discretion from a court, maybe comparing it to an old king or somebody who would say, please, here's my case, and you don't have rules, you don't have statutes, and it's just please do what's fair. We, that was maybe our first set of algorithms for saying, in this case, we do that. If you steal something that doesn't belong to you, you will go to jail. And now we still have algorithms, but they are different in a way that, yeah, chat GPT seems to me like an especially literate version of Wikipedia. It's almost conversational and it seems magical to look at it. But when you look at the product, it's, oh, they're taking that idea and that idea, and you can compartmentalize maybe where they got the various parts to this. As John says, the rate of change is something that I don't know if I have the capacity to even imagine this. And here's the problem. We are getting to the point where the machine is going to train the machine. It's not gonna be humans training the machines. Humans are gonna get it going And then eventually, and it's already happening, that the machines are going to train the machines, and not just with rules, if you steal, you go to jail, but with scientists call it connectionist architecture, where it's being trained with exemplars, examples. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, is a judge really going to be necessary for a motion to compel when you might have a machine not too far in the future that can be trained up with millions of exemplars of interrogatories and objections and what proper and improper rulings might be, who's to say whether that might not be a more efficient, fair enough, maybe more fair way to resolve things? So again, I'm pushing the humility button pretty hard here. Certainly, this whole area is ripe for regulation, ethical guidance, for guardrails to be placed all around it by humans. And Several months ago, we had the open letter that was submitted by over a thousand technologists and business leaders, industry leaders, talking about the da- some of the dangers that you're talking about. And we have government regulatory agencies and others looking at, at many of these issues. Those are always the dangers, and we need to keep those in check. I would challenge you, though, and say that some of the very traditional frameworks we already have in place, and some of them are referenced in the some of the federal rulings or orders that are coming out can act as as frameworks for regulation of these types of issues. Again, I'll go back for a moment to the electronic discovery rules. It's true that those rules were amended in 2006 to deal especially with electronic evidence. But before that time, it was all, it was still the case that under the the previous federal rule structure, 
you always had the obligation to produce evidence, even if it was in electronic form. We had to adjust and amend to account for technology. Here, too, we need to adjust and amend, and there's certainly a lot that can be said and a, a lot that can be done here to, to adjust. But we do have a framework. There are ethical rules already in place that in our profession that already govern the conduct of lawyers and require them to do things in a certain way and to use their judgment. You mentioned Wikipedia. My daughter in elementary school came to me with a report she had written and she cited Wikipedia and we had to have a conversation about why that wasn't a good idea to, to use Wikipedia and we had a discussion about appropriate methodology for research. Presumably these lawyers were taught in law school the appropriate methodology for research. I'm talking about the ones in New York that got in trouble recently for using chat GPT for research. It is still the case that we have certain obligations as lawyers to conduct our practice in a certain way, even before we have specific AI guidelines. So let's not forget that. So let me ask this, being more practical, I mean, I'm not saying you're not being practical, but like today, what tasks that lawyers do at firms do you think that the current state of AI is most likely to replace? So it's already helping expedite document review, and it has been for several years. It can help automate contract creation and contract management. Talking specifically about ChatGPT, it's my opinion that's not appropriate to use for substantive legal research see the New York federal case. But I do think there may be some appropriate use cases, for example, for generating first drafts of correspondence to clients, for example, or perhaps some marketing materials, things like that. If it can generate a biography for me, like Eric read earlier, that's great. Perhaps there are some non-legal uses, but that can be applied in a firm setting going back to broader AI uses, there are platforms in development that are, and that are available now that use large language models, but that have different proprietary guardrails placed around them that are more reliable for legal research. So one example of that is a product developed by a company called Case Text called CoCounsel. So that's more like a Lexis or Westlaw, but it can draft documents, it can summarize depositions, it can perform certain legal tasks like that. I think anything that... What about estate planning? Yeah. Estate plans, wills, it could even, I think it that would be something that you could provide the specific, there's only certain variables, this is what we want to do, tax avoid, the tax avoidance, passing income on to future generations, I would think, but then again, those forms are already here, in a sense, when somebody's drafting a will or a trust or they don't start from zero. Same with us when we're drafting interrogatories. Sure. It should be said here that the data sets that these products are using to, quote unquote, train themselves. So ChatGPT is using the Internet. Law, law firms and lawyers can develop or customize existing platforms using their own work product. So in your example of the state planning forms, if you were a firm that specialized in that area, you could superpower your existing work, po work product database that had those forms 
and put some features in it that would allow you to extract or more easily find certain types of clauses. You've got to customize it to your right. Plan. Customize it to make it more efficient so that those tasks would go faster. So let me ask you, this is something that I'm sitting here smiling because you mentioned efficiency. Right. And so, again, I've been practicing since 86. I don't know what that is, 37, 38 years. And I did a lot of product liability stuff work from the very beginning. And a heavy document case back in 1986 was 1,200 pages or 3,500 pages or maybe two boxes of documents. You get into 2,500 and we didn't have anything to help us get through them, or when we asked for documents, somebody had to actually copy them, put them in a box, walk them in the office with a two-wheeler. And now, fast forward, I have several product cases, and I have many, maybe a dozen or more, where I have hundreds of thousands of documents. The efficiency of the technology, I spend more time with the documents today than I did when I didn't have the help of this wonderful technology because now with the press of a button, some attorney somewhere else in a different state somewhere, the night before my deposition can send me 6,800 pages of new material. What other problems is this going to create short-term, the AI? Yeah, so I'll answer that question, but I want to back up on a couple of things. First of all, I want to ask you, in your long experience of going from one or two boxes to a warehouse full of documents, I'm always interested. Do you find that at the end of the case, let's say the case goes to trial, that you have exponentially more exhibits at the end, or do you generally have about the same number of important key documents? Important uh, key documents, about the same number. And the other thing I'll tell you, too, is I think that the cases are better because the documents are better. Yeah. It's the same number, but they're much better because online, everything, you can find anything you want to find online about in... 30 years ago, if I had a case involving a, a pool heater or something, I'd have to get manuals and see what the other side turned over. And now, I mean, there are YouTube videos and you can get information. I'm taking somebody's deposition, witnesses' depositions on Friday. And the stuff on, online is you can find out every case that they've testified in and get copies of the deposition. So I think it hasn't saved me any time, but the quality of the evidence that we're able to generate has gotten better, I would say. Okay. No, that's fair enough. Second, I just want to push back a little on the notion that this is going to put lawyers out of work. I would argue that it's going to put them to better use. It's going to, who wants to be a lawyer who spends their lives in a document warehouse, paging through documents? And who wants to pay for that from a client's point of view? Nobody. In my view, what it does is it makes lawyers freer to perform more sophisticated, judgment-based legal work, work that really requires the use of legal judgment and potentially creates work for other paraprofessionals or other legal labor to do some of the other matters. So that's what I would say about that. No, I, I, and I can see that. It's it. What it does is it creates other opportunities and avenues to get information. I think the, the one thing 100% is I think everybody needs to learn as much about this as they can because if you don't know about it, that's when you're going to really get hit. Right. If you're not able to understand it and use it and implement it in your practice, I think the whole thing is going to you're going to be so far behind so quickly, your head's going to spin, I think. Exactly. I would agree with that. To your other question about unintended consequences, I do think that to the extent some of these models are built on the internet, it's a little it's 
garbage in, garbage out, right? You don't always know what data is being used. What is the basis of that answer that you're getting, of that narrative that you're getting? What is the basis of that biography that they they're read about me? What it, it may cause, you know how when you research even in a traditional way, you go down rabbit holes, right? Sure. You know, what yeah. kind of rabbit holes is, is are some of these models going down to give you? You see an answer. article or something, yeah. right? Well, I, don't know, I want to know who the hell wrote it. Where right. Where did this come from? Yeah, that, right. Some of that kind of stuff. Perhaps it makes things unnecessarily complex in some cases. That's those are a couple that, that come to mind. Potentially accessibility. As these types of technologies become more prevalent, are there some, right now, ChatGPT is quote unquote free. As they become more established, are there some bars to accessibility to justice? There, I think in the near term and just philosophically, there are many advantages to some of these technologies. So to your point, when we're talking about forms, okay, Think about a, an application for something like landlord-tenant law or orders of protection and domestic violence cases or any of those types of cases that someone would generally be representing themselves in state court. As an example, wouldn't it be great if some of these technologies could be used to guide them because the clerk's not going to do it. They can't right. do it. If some of these technologies could be used for those types of pro se litigants to help them with their type, with their case, yes. But what if down the road, these technologies start to become costly and then somehow they act as bars against accessibility to justice, not necessarily in those cases, but in other cases. And then the um, gap's even more right. wider and they're left further behind. Yeah. The, and just making sure that, so there was a, a legal tech week in St. Louis and back in April, and we were talking about this, the, also the importance of having diversity and inclusion in the development of these models. And that conversation has been focused in some ways on things like facial recognition and thing, things that are can have racial implications. But even just the development of syntax, of the way they're used, I think it's important that we don't just leave those things to Elon Musk, that we have, that we're being thoughtful about who we're bringing into these conversations and how these things are being developed and put into use, and that we do that from the beginning. I think one of the advantages of having these conversations and having some of these anxieties early on is that it prompts conversations about how not to make the mistakes that we can see are potentially there. So one, things, one thing we do well as lawyers is we think of all the worst case scenarios, of all the pitfalls, of all the risk. So I think what we should be doing is understanding that this is happening, whether or not we can see or understand what 20 years looks in the future looks like or what five years in the future looks like. So let's prepare for and limit risk where we can, but let's also see the opportunities to create some more equality here to create and inject more diversity here. That's what I would like to see is to have to make these types of conversations really meaningful and to put some power and some purpose into the the uncertainty, if you will. It's important to stay on top of it, whatever, do what you can. Could you talk about the ethical rules and how they might apply to these technologies? Yeah. Yeah. So just going to some of the rules generally. Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 1, of course, talks about 
The rules should be construed, administered, and employed by the court and the parties to secure the just, speedy, and inexpensive determination of every action and proceeding. That certainly could be construed or interpreted to, to mean that or to make an argument that AI should be employed where it can to expedite legal proceedings. You have Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 11, which is a sanctions rule that is being used by the federal court in New York to question whether two lawyers there who used ChatGPT and relied on it for a federal legal pleading should be sanctioned for not checking their work. It turned out that the case citations they got from ChatGPT were fake. They had been hallucinated by ChatGPT. So that's a sanctions rule. And the question there is really the motive or the intent of the attorneys. We have Rule 1.1 on competence, and there the comment 8 is the one that speaks to technology. Comment 6 in Missouri says, to maintain the requisite knowledge and skill, a lawyer should keep abreast of changes in the law and its practice, including the benefits and risk associated with relevant technology, engage in continuing study and education, and comply with all continuing legal education to which the lawyer is subject. So specifically referencing technology there. So here are some thoughts on that. So I think with respect to electronic discovery, which is the era in which this was this comment was put in there, I think most attorneys had the point of view that you can associate with other lawyers who have this expertise. So I don't personally have to know this stuff. I can associate with a specialist in e-discovery, and therefore I can rely on them. As these waters get muddier with artificial intelligence technology, it's going to become more and more difficult to do that. So here, again, take the case of the New York lawyers who, as it turns out, cited authority to a federal court that didn't exist. Hard for them to take a position that they could rely on somebody else who knows about artificial intelligence. These technologies are going to become more and more central and foundational to the way that we litigate, to the way that we manage and represent our clients. So I think it's going to change the way we practice in that it's going to force us to become more technologically competent to understand the nuts and bolts of this type of technology in ways that we can defend our practice. If you're brought up for Rule 11 sanctions before a federal court, you're going to have to be able to defend yourself. You can't send somebody else. So I think that it's something that lawyers need to take very seriously. And it's something that is certainly getting the attention of the bar on a national level, right? That, that case of citing two cases that don't exist seems like an easy one to me because that I can analogize that to putting a natural language search into Westlaw and just asking the legal question you're after and then copying and pasting whatever comes out, slapping it into a brief and calling it a day without reading the cases. That's These are seemingly obvious problems. But, but I can foresee, like you say, mudding the waters is going to get more and more interesting going forward. But think of the impact that's having. I agree with you. It's an egregious case. But the impact of that is such that it's going to have repercussions for everybody. Now, Texas in a Dallas court, the day after this hearing, so I think it was May 31st, a different federal district judge issued a mandatory order requiring that every lawyer in his court sign a mandatory certificate regarding whether he or she used artificial intelligence in the drafting of any pleading 
in his court, and if they did, saying that they, attesting that they checked that research or that reliance by traditional methods, which includes, it says, will be checked for accuracy using print reporters or traditional legal databases by a human being before it is submitted to this court. Now, this judge, I believe, said that wasn't premised on the New York case. That judge, I think, said that he had been participating in some some training for federal judges on artificial intelligence and was concerned about the potential impact. But this has real consequences. Imagine if these types of orders are put into place in courts around the country and suddenly everyone is going to have to stop and think about every type of you and to sign a certification. We've never done we've never had to do that before with Lexus, with Westlaw, with any of the other types of technology that we use in our practice. You have to question whether this goes a bit too far and whether attorneys like the ones in New York and unfortunate circumstances like that don't have a kind of a unfortunate impact on all of us. Don't you think also that when something like this happens, I mean, it's the free market and certain programs are going to be more, they're going to be fighting to be more accurate because that's the down, that's the downside. It's not accurate. It's not trustworthy. And those platforms that can, that are more reliable or more accurate, the, the ones that aren't, the ones that aren't accurate are going to be around, right? Are we going to gravitate towards the ones that are a little bit more reliable or the most reliable? Yeah, I think, again, it's, can be a useful starting point, right? So again, the analogy to using like Lexus or Westlaw, even to the extent it's helping you draft or making suggestions, recommendations on how you draft or structure a brief or something. You may use that as as a starting point, but again, it's ethically, it's incumbent upon us as practitioners to go back to to check that, whether or not we have to attest to it, and to use our own legal judgment in discerning whether the interpretation of that case that it's giving you is correct or not. Your point is correct, John. It's going to be, if you decide that it's not, if you're using a product and you decide, uh, that's off base, you're probably not going to use it again. So I guess it's probably not a good idea for them to use AI to draft the response to the sanctions. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Probably not. So now again, I would I I want to make this clear. The, they're using this was a, a case of ChatGPT. There are legal products that there are products out there that are more tailored for a specialized use like legal research, but ChatGPT is not that product. So We've been with Joy Holly. Thank you for joining us to talk about AI. This has been episode one of two. Thank you. We'll see you next time for part two. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.